my head is attached to my neck, it can turn left and right. My name is Matthew Kroll. And there are three stages to every interrogation. I'm not sure which one we're at. My name is Shahir Dow. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically this week, the Catherine Bigelow film, Detroit. Detroit. <laughs> okay, that's good. Uh, There's not a lot I know about Detroit. Right, to, that's I it. Be, I, I, fun fact: I used to be into really uh, uh, into house music because I was born in the late '70s and and uh, you know went to college in the early noughts. So okay. I, it was all it was all house music and the Detroit house scene. You know, people like Carl Cox were kind of like my jam back okay. in the day. All right. Um, so you know that I know that. Good. Uh, <laughs> um, wonderful. Wonderful. Also, Detroit is the the house of the mo- the the home of the motor industry. Oh, the one yes. now now defunct motor industry, but it's coming back according to Eminem. Yeah. 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 Also true. Also yeah. true. Uh, no. Uh, so this, this week's is, um, is going to be, a, I, I, I hate to say it's not, it's not going to be a downer. It's going to be interesting on different levels than we normally talk about. Uh, although increasingly due to the state of the, uh, union, uh, we've been talking about it more and more, uh, um, because it's going, it's, 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 it's come. It's not that it ever really completely went away, but it's going more into our mainstream quote art. And, uh, it's just everywhere. Yeah. It's a, I, I gotta admit, I saw, so I was at work when the events of this week, which, which seems so long ago, but basically this week, our president decided to take it upon himself to, to perhaps defend the ur of white nationalists. Uh, and, and I was so taken aback by that moment that I was kind of, I felt pretty, I, I just felt like weird for the rest of the day. I, I felt like, wow, what, what a, as you should. Yeah. I felt very, very strange and unusual for the rest of the day. And so I decided, uh, in fact, you texted me saying you were going to go see the movie that night. And it was at that, it, I, and I didn't respond to you cause I didn't think I'd make it. Right. But then when I heard, what Donald Trump had said this week, I kind of was like, you know what? I need to get out of here. I need to go see a movie. Um, and I'm, I'm going <laughs> to oh, go good. see Detroit. And I, I just kind of, I, I think I needed this, you know, like I needed something like this. I needed something to channel. I like, uh, I, I don't look for escapism in movies necessarily. Right. I don't, I don't look for, yeah, like, you don't. Yeah. I don't, you don't. Look, that's I, not you. I, I, I want to look for some way to channel the way I'm feeling. Oh, good. And so, uh, Detroit was the thing, which is an interesting, interesting experience, which, which I'm sure we'll get into. We will. We will. Um, but, uh, before we get into that, sure. one thing I wanted to point out this week, and I'm not sure I haven't actually even broached this to you. Normally when we get on the podcast, I, I kind of, prep Matt for what I'm going to talk about. So he's oh got no, is this a, a surprise? He's got at least a moment to think about it. Oh good. Uh, and respond before he actually has to respond. Oh but no. New York City is having a special event called One Film. They've done this before. They did this with one book where every uh, for a single month everyone read the same book and and book clubs organized around the city to to, to talk about this one book. We're going to we're going to watch one movie for a month? No, <laughs> yeah, we're going to we're going to Groundhog Day this. <laughs> and it is Groundhog Day. So there you go. Is it really? No, it's not. Oh damn it. No, we're not watching one movie for a single month. Um, uh, New York, if you go to nyc.gov forward slash one film, they're having an event on September 13th uh, called the one film event, which is where everyone will get together uh, in different venues around the city and we'll watch one single film and you can join film clubs. You can talk about this uh, uh, with people, but hopefully you're going to get this collective experience of experience of of one particular film. Gotcha. 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 You could talk to other New Yorkers about and the, and right now they're going through a voting process of trying to pick what this one, film would be and they have five options uh the options are on the town okay new york new york crooklyn 
the wedding banquet and desperately seeking Susan. So these are all exclusively New York based. Yes. Films. It, that seems appropriate. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a great thing. Celebrities get involved. Everyone wants to talk about these particular films. Uh, I would encourage our listeners, if you are New York based to go to the site and make a vote. And then I, I don't know, Matt, I, I mean, maybe we should join in on this and, and have a conversation about that one film. I mean, of course, I think that's totally fine to do an episode on that and go to go to one of these. Is it just one event? Uh, no, no, you can, there'll be multi, you could watch the movie at home if you wanted to. You could watch the movie wherever you want to. Um, oh, they're but, just trying to make a, a conversation in, in the ether, sort of like yeah, everyone yeah. talk about suddenly seeking Susan. It's just, it's just to get everyone into the idea of, you know, there is New York is obviously a very prolific uh, city on film. Mm-hmm. So they want to talk about New York on film. Um, when does voting close for that, for those five? Uh, voting closes, I'm actually not certain when voting closes. You You're here vote. with all the information. Yeah, I know. I don't, I don't know. But there are plenty of movie theaters that will be playing this one movie that day, uh, including uh, the Museum of Moving Image in Astoria, where we both live. Okay. Uh, Alamo Drafthouse, Nighthawk, Film, Film Society, the Lincoln Center. Yeah, let's do whatever uh, one wins. Uh, I personally would put my vote in for Crooklyn, because I'm a big Spike Lee fan. Sure. I love that movie. I have the soundtrack. I've seen that, and I've seen Suddenly Seeking. I yeah, don't think I've seen the other three. I've seen New York, New York a long time ago. Wedding Banquet, I always mistake for an Ang Lee movie, which is uh, the wedding... Uh, feast, the wedding feast, the wedding. I yeah, I forget which buffet. wedding. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, and and I haven't seen on the town, but I would be, you know, whichever film uh, gets picked, I would be happy to to to, to watch, review, talk, to join in the conversation yeah. about New York. Please write us in with your choice at uh, onlymoviepodcast at gmail Hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod, and please go to nyc.gov forward slash one film to choose a film and uh, let, us, let yeah. us know if you're going to be in engaged in this if you live in New York and uh, we will try to participate. And also since we're on the on the plugging portion of uh, our lovely podcast, you can rate us over at iTunes. Uh, we'll take however many stars you can spare. Obviously we like five but you know, we'll, we'll go with whatever you have. <laughs> Biggest happy uh, we, actually, we have a great uh, we have a great review up, uh, five stars so yeehaw, by uh, Joe Fabu uh, <laughs> and it, it literally the, t- the title of it is, What is Up Internet? <laughs> in quotes. There you go, you've, you've uh, created something. I, you know, and they said I discovered Man Shahir a year ago and have listened to every single episode since then, even the ones for movies I haven't watched. That's ballsy. I yeah, like it. Yeah. Uh, they analyze the themes in the movies and sometimes even their social slash political context role in a super entertaining and inspiring way. I swear it's the only podcast about movies then in parentheses in my phone anyway, which that was, I thought that was super sweet. So thank you, Joe Fabu. Uh, and everybody, please leave us some, leave us some uh, words, preferably kind, but you know, it's uh, a, <laughs> well, I, I actually, I'll, I, I'll I, take, I'll take criticism. Yeah, I like, if I it's like, constructive, I will a hundred percent. Criticism. <laughs> I do enjoy uh, cr- constructive criticism. Uh, not even constructive criticism. You can be angry at us if you want to. Oh, we, yeah. But we it, can be the Batman that you need us to be. Oh, see, <laughs> oh, wow. You're making superhero references before I am. Yeah, there you go. Oh, my training is. Oh, I'm so proud of me. I'm, I, I'm, I bet you are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but moving on to this week, uh, Detroit. Now, this is a film I obviously, uh, in the spectrum of Matt Shahir movies, is something that's going to be. I'm more excited about. Uh, but again, I don't watch the trailers. I just know Catherine Bigelow is making a movie. Uh, so I'm like, okay, I want to see what Catherine Bigelow is making. How are you on the Catherine Bigelow train? She- uh, Zero Dark is great. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I've seen the Hurt Locker as well. Uh, they're, they're both good. They're both. She's super, super clinical. Right. And I don't dislike that. But it's, even it's, Point Break. 
<laughs> well, I mean, that she, before, after Point Break, she got pretty clinical. Right. Uh, no, no, that's exactly how life is, Shahir. <laughs> I do love that she directed Point Break. Point Near Break Dark is as well, the uh, vampire movie with Christopher Lambert. Yeah, Lambert. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of hers. It, they're not films that um, I revisit much. Mm-hmm. I think I've seen Zero Dark twice, and mm-hmm. I've definitely only seen... Uh, the Hurt Locker? Hurt Locker once. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing you've seen Point Break many times. I've seen Point Break enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, I, I like her. And now I, I, it's sort of this being sort of a three-peat of style, like tripling yeah. down on style. I, I figured I would knew what I would get going in. And there's been some um, criticism from, from actually critics that I normally uh, 100% agree with uh, just about the sort of style and the way this film was handled, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Okay. Um, but I, um, I, I don't know. I, 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 I knew what I was getting and I got what I expected and, uh, yeah, okay. I, I, I was not, sh- I was l- the, the events in the film are shocking. If you are not familiar, I was not shocked by the directorial style. This film was made. In. Right. I'm a big fan. I, I'm a big fan of Catherine Bigelow. I think, uh, recently, uh, since the Hurt Locker, obviously in zero dark 30, she has evolved from her action movie days. Remember she was once married to James Cameron. Um, <laughs> could you imagine being, being married, married to, to James, James Cameron? Cameron? And being a filmmaker at the same time. Oh. And remember and remember in two thousand and eight they were both nominated for Best Picture and she won. Yeah, he was he was up there for Avatar, and she was up there for uh, for the Hurt Locker. And I'm so glad it went that way because <laughs> yeah. Avatar is not a best picture. No, no. And uh, so I, I, I could, could you just imagine being a fly on the wall in that in that bedroom? Uh, <laughs> I was going to say that green room, but any room that they're in. But well, actually, the funny I, the, I was going to say the green zone because I think uh, she has uh, evolved uh, into a less jingoistic Peter Berg, even though she's a, a, a much more experienced filmmaker than Peter Berg. Sure. Um, and closer in line to someone like Paul Greengrass, who I think has managed to do that surprising thing of infuse action, like and high caliber action with politics, uh, which is something that uh, Paul Greengrass is very well known for, very, very good at. Yep. Uh, the Bourne films, obviously United 93 and The Green Zone, which is how I brought that. I, I, wrapped, yeah, I wrapped that up. Um, so I uh, and I think she has a really. She does that thing, which is that I don't think she is trying to make, um, she's not enamored by art direction or, or focused cinematography. What she's good at is, is capturing the events unfolding in a way that is both, uh, at once visceral, realistic and immediate. And that's a really tricky thing. Um, it's, it's a, it's a skill set that, that very few filmmakers can do well. I mean, you remember back in the, uh, the late noughts, the thing became about shaky cam, you know, people being Ugh. pissed off at shaky cam all the time, which is something I think Paul Greengrass kind of pioneered in many ways. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, uh, Catherine Bigelow is a filmmaker who employs that technique, but with far more success because she, employs it in a way not to disorientate the viewer, but to place the viewer in the scene. Right. So, yep. so I think she's very, very good at that. And so I, I do like it. That's it. I, I think, uh, the hurt locker is miraculous. I, I think I, I love that film. I think it's, I think it's really phenomenal. Uh, I love point break. Uh, I think, uh, I think point break, uh, Johnny Utah gets me every time, um, seeing Gary Busey ask for meatball subs. Uh, I don't know why. I just want to have some of those meatball subs from, uh, from LA. Oh, hold on. Side note, side note. Okay. Is this you've, a side been, note? you've been very, uh, active on social media asking about <laughs> fi- uh, like food in movies oh, yeah. this week. What the hell is up with that? I, 
I was bored and I started thinking about food in movies. You did. You tweeted like, I think, or Facebooked or whatever, like 10 or 15 times different things, <laughs> questions about people eating food in films. And I was like, what? And then one of your friends is like, are, are you drinking again? And I was like, yeah, I think so. Like what? I, I, uh, I don't know what it was. I think I was having a sandwich at the time and I was just thinking about, I think it, it all started. It started with two things. Okay. One was, uh, there's one scene in the movie Philadelphia where uh, Denzel Washington is eating something at a library. And the way he eats it, he makes it seem like this is the most delicious thing he's ever had. He just, he basically stuffs this whole thing into his mouth. And I'm, and I, and, and there's a, there's a YouTube channel called binging with Babish, uh, where a guy, go, a chef goes and like finds food from movies and, and like pr prepares them. Like he did the milk steak from it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Sure. It is the, uh, baby you can chive my car from Bob's burgers. Um, and and I just wanted to know what this food was. I just wanted to know what this, I was on the train eating something and it just popped into my head and I was huh. bored. And then, and then that led into a train of thought. And I was, I was in the middle of something where I had a lot of downtime and I was just like, Oh, what other foods have I, oh have I never God. really thought about? You hit, you went <laughs> down that K hole hard. My favorite was, uh, what does Batman eat? When he's out vigilanteing for a night, <laughs> just, I don't know. It just it just occurred to me. It was like, when does he stop for food? Uh, the Lego Batman movie answered that. It's Lobster Thermidor, and it's when he gets home. But that's when he gets home. I'm saying like he needs to like. I I, I think Batman is a guy who carbo loads at sunset and like has protein shakes before he goes out. Possibly and, and like. But I was just like, curious. it is interesting. You never see Batman eat as Batman, or at least I haven't. Spider Man is always pulling up his hood and just eating. He got a churro in yeah, the last movie. Yeah. So, um, anyway, all right. So, I was just curious. Side Sorry. note: Meatball Sub, I, Point Break, Catherine Bigelow. We're back. Email us with your favorite <laughs> food movie questions at uh, shahirspersonalemail.com. Or, or, yeah, no, but actually, I, I, I don't know. Maybe we could do a subject about uh, a topic about Sure, this. only movie podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> uh, and hashtag, I, I think I've, I've, there's only 10 tweets about this, and I'm the only one tweeting about it, but hashtag film food. I, uh, I thought film food was an actual thing. No, and I was I like, just, oh, maybe he's having a conversation with someone. But then when I saw 10 things go by with no one replying, <laughs> I was like, oh, he made it up. Yeah, it's just my thing. Um, uh, yeah. We got lots to talk about on food okay. on film, All right. uh, but back to Catherine Bigelow. So Catherine Bigelow has evolved. I think after the success of Hurt Locker to be the filmmaker of the now, when it comes to us rhetoric, um, you know, um, zero dark 30 was obviously a controversial film about the assassination of, uh, uh Osama bin Laden. Yeah. Some would say assassination. Some would say apprehension. Um, depending on which way you look at it. And I think I'm not a huge fan of that movie, but I don't, I, I don't think it deserves the, uh, the vitriol with which it's placed upon. Cause I think, I think, you know, people I would, are angry about it. Yeah. Well, people are angry about, and this is going to lead to my first, uh, so my first big question that I thought about when watching Detroit. Um, the question that comes up, uh, recently, and I think that we're seeing a lot more of, uh, you know, in respect to films like The Big Sick, even, um, is who owns a story and who has the right to tell a story? And I think, you know, we're seeing, you know, like in the case of, uh, uh, and, and this is going to come into play a little bit better when we get into our race and representation conversation. Yeah. But, but, but films like Dunkirk, for example. We're pitching so many other shows other yeah. than this one right no, now. No, no, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to wind us back. All right, cool. Uh, a film like uh, Dunkirk, for example, has had a lot of criticism thrown its way because of the way in which it 
depicts uh, the Britishness of the Dunkirk uh, evacuation without, well, for example, there've been many articles saying, well, why aren't there any brown people on that, uh, uh, on that beach? When in fact, there were many uh, Indian soldiers who fought for the British, uh, the British Royal Army, uh, who we never see in that movie. Uh, why, you know, and we, we both, when we were watching Dunkirk, you know, made that comment. It's hard to, it's hard to distinguish who's who, because everyone's like a black haired white guy. Literally everyone looks the same yeah, yeah. on that beach, <laughs> which would be a racist thing to say if we leveled it at a, a, at another race um and it's a, and it's an interesting point that we're at and of course this again ties into what happened in charlottesville this week as everything inevitably does we are a, a, you know, time is a flat circle and trump is the center of it for some uh, bizarre reason is a ladder other fictional characters <laughs> giving us words of wisdom but uh but but my question is and th- there has been a lot of debate around the movie detroit is who who owns the right to a story? And, and I don't mean that in a commercial sense. I don't mean like who literally can commercially banter their right. Okay. But, but say, for example, let's take another tragedy. Um, <laughs> let's take one. Let's take a tragedy. Um, let's say the Trail of Tears, um, the exodus of the Native American people uh, at the uh, behest or, or at the ordering of Andrew Jackson's uh, Indian Removal Act, which uh, saw basically the almost genocide of an entire people. Sure. Who do you think owns the right to tell that story today. Are you asking me? Yeah, I'm asking rhetorically. Uh, everyone? You think so? Yeah, because they're all going to tell it from a different perspective. Do you think an entirely all-white American uh, group of filmmakers, actors, could tell that story effectively? Oh, got you. Um, sure, because at the end of the day, something we've talked about a lot on this podcast mm-hmm. is... Uh, this is this is breaching into another subject. I'm gonna try to tie it all together. Yeah, talent outweighs everything else in entertainment. And I, but what I mean by that is, we've talked. This is sort of a side thing, but we've talked about like people who've done horrible things that were like, oh, we still love their music, or oh, we da 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 da. Yeah. So if something is done well enough then I think anybody can do it. Now, is it tactful? Is it correct? Are you getting all of the the small details right? I mean, probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think as far as a historical story goes, uh, anyone can tell it because it's, and, and no one's going to get it right. I mean, it's, it's always going to be tainted by, uh, you know, hindsight and uh, opinion and what side people fell on during it. Um, even if, even if one side is telling the other story's side, yeah, you can do a shit ton of research, but like it, and then it, and then it gets into like even older history, like American history is kind of easier to, to, um, to grasp at least the majority of the facts because it's only so many hundred years old. Um, Try comparing to New Zealand history, which is even shorter. You know what I mean? But <laughs> yeah. say like the shorter the history, the yeah. easier it is for, I think anyone, if they wanted to try to tell an accurate story, I think anyone should be able to tell a story. Now that's the same sort of uh, the same sort of uh, belief about sort of quote free speech. Yeah. And by that, I mean, yeah, you can say anything, but there are consequences to you saying anything. Right. That's part of free speech. I I love it when people are like, oh, free speech, you need to let me say this. Like, yeah, but I can also react in any way I want to the free speech because if if you're being an idiot. So like there's the bottom line is I do feel like anyone can tell it. Now, if you if you put two films in front of me about the Trail of Tears and one was made by uh, uh, random, maybe even super talented white dudes and one was made by uh, super talented Native Americans. 
I would pick the Native American one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, but I don't think, I don't think, I, I guess it, when, when you use the word who has the right to do it, and I know you don't mean legally, yeah. uh, I think everyone has the right to maybe do the it. Word, the, maybe I'm, uh, maybe the word is who owns the story. Everyone, if it's a historical story, everyone owns the story and they're all going to put their own spin in it. Now, the, the, that doesn't mean that uh, one, uh, that doesn't mean that both sides are sort of morally correct, Yeah, but I do think that anyone can tell that story. Yeah. It's just that it's not, I don't think it's going to be as correct or as good if not told by a certain side, I guess. You do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, and I, I don't mean to say that uh, no one can tell a certain story. I just think that what's been happening. That's, that's been interesting in the last few years. And I think it has to do with the rise of social activism on the internet, um, particularly on the internet and in, in that it's a good way. It, the internet is a good platform for airing grievances and, and virality of stories as a way for, for, for ideas to spread very quickly. I hope so. But actually I, I don't, think that's actually true these days with the way the internet actually works. I think it was. And now with sort of these bubbles and the, the way the algorithms work with all of our social media, we're all just getting the stuff that they know we like. Right. And that, that's a problem because it doesn't, it doesn't spread ideas. It's an echo chamber for everyone's own ideas. I, I think uh, that's fair, but I think compared to say like 30 years ago when you would just receive a movie, there was a sweet spot <laughs> yeah. somewhere a, like maybe five years, maybe seven years back where the internet actually felt like a place where everyone shared ideas and people sort of learned a bit. And and then when uh, our, our global overlords of Google and Facebook kind of took the took the reins and basically wanted to market to us, okay. we all started getting our own sort of stuff fed back to us. But I think I think that's a fair point. Uh, my 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 argument is, is that I think we're seeing um, the to to find opinions about uh, films. Uh, is much much easier than it was previously. Oh, and I, yeah. I think and I think the thing that has been interesting is that every group wants to uh, place, want, wants to suggest, every group feels like they have some ownership in a story. So for example, in Dunkirk, the story of the uh, the Indian uh, Royal Army who was involved there. In the case of the big sick, you know, Asian Americans in America, uh, South Amer- you know, South Asian yeah, Americans yeah. in America. In the case of Detroit, you know, a film about the Detroit riots of 1967, the, the question that has been asked is, can Mark Boll, uh, the screenwriter, and Catherine Bigelow, the, the director, effectively tell the story? And there are two articles that I wanted to, to point sure. to that are, that are, you know, look, again, I don't necessarily agree with these articles entirely. We haven't even, we haven't got to our review of the film yet. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just pointing out things that I've been thinking about as I watch the movie. Right. It, uh, and they are, uh, uh, on the Huffington Post, uh, an article written by Gian Theoharis, uh, Say Bergen, Mary Phillips, which the title title is Detroit is the most irresponsible and dangerous movie of the year. Wow. Um, which points to a couple of interesting thought points about why that might be the case. Um, and then Roger Ebert's review, uh, well, not Roger Ebert's on rogerebert.com, Angelica Bastian's review of Detroit, which gave it two stars. Um, and, and who really did not enjoy this film. Um, and I think there's an interesting thing here because I don't, you know, as we've said before, uh, I think, uh, Catherine Bigelow is a very extremely talented filmmaker, a filmmaker of uh, a deeply thoughtful filmmaker, uh, a filmmaker of note, an important filmmaker in American cinema history, not let alone for being the first and only woman to win an Oscar for Best Director. Um, 
But the question that's being arisen is, can a non-African American have ownership of this particular story, which is so much about the victimization and the daily lives of, uh, of African Americans tell the story? There's and two, there's two, there's two points to that. Mm-hmm. One, I think when I was saying, oh, everybody has mm-hmm. right to tell a story. I, or I think everyone has the right to tell a story, but also no one, like, I think the more appropriate term is no one owns a historical story. So I think for instance, if, if we had, you know, Detroit, Catherine Bigelow's film, uh, next to say a story about the same instances at the Algier hotel and the, and, you know, the riots before and the fallout after, uh, but say by like Jordan Peele, mm-hmm. I would pick Jordan Peele's like, because I think without he, sight unseen. If, if if you put these two things together, and maybe I'd watch both trailers, but yeah. but I instinctively I'd be like, yeah, I want to see his take on it more than I want to see Catherine Bigelow's take on it. And the interesting thing about what, I, and we'll get into Detroit soon, I, I promise. <laughs> no, we are talking about. It, I know but we're talking about the preamble. Uh, but the 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 thing about this film is, you know, it's it's presented in a way that is. <laughs> borderline like reenactment mm-hmm. which is something that uh, she's very good at. yeah 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 um and that's fine and i think that it, for a for a white person to do this story that's the safest probably most correct way to do it mm-hmm. um so so that's fine <laughs> uh it's just it's it's hard because i i would i would it's just it's just the whole concept of like the ownership of a historical moment like yeah, yeah. Th- there's no question in in my eyes and i hope in everyone's eyes uh who is who is in the right and who is in the wrong in certain situations in this film mm-hmm. um and it, it shows a very sort of clinical look at a awful awful situation um do i think Catherine bigelow and and the, her producer and writer have a have a right to tell this story yeah do i think it's the 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 most tactful and intelligent move. Not really. Mm-hmm. I just, it's, it's, I think we're just, we're the point I wanted to make is that we're getting into an interesting period where, and I, you know, like where we're starting to think about the value of movies and the way that they reflect society and, and in the way in which people's, historic nuances haven't necessarily been on display on film. And I think, and I think people are starting to like question that and say, Hey, wait that a minute. That makes sense. And, and I think, and I think that's an interesting conversation to have. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think the light of, you know, the Huffington post article and, uh, and the Roger Ebert.com article, um, basically signal that kind of, uh, dialectic around this film and any story. And I, you know, I think, and I think the three films that we saw this, Actually, even four films uh, that we saw this summer point to that conversation. The four films are Dunkirk, The Big Sick, um, Detroit, and the and the Amazing uh, and Spider Man Homecoming. Actually, point to that uh, to that topic in some way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm 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 particularly interested in that. So wait, but so what, you didn't so answer your own question. Do, do you think that then anyone has the right to tell any story? I think anyone does have the right to tell any story. I think. Uh, if you put the the Jordan Peele version in front of me versus the Catherine Bigelow version in front of me, I think I would inherently be more interested to see the Catherine Bigelow version because I think Catherine Bigelow as a filmmaker is more primed to work within this field. However, if I recall, the, the, the most important thing I wanted to bring, and I wanted to mention Jordan Peele's Get Out, was that when I saw Get Out, um, there was an interesting moment at the end of the film, and here's a real spoiler for the end of the film. Yeah, so tune um, out if you haven't seen well, Get Out. It's a 
slight spoiler, uh, is that is that the events of the film unfold and then, and then a police, we, we see what we believe to be a police car. And everyone in my audience, everyone I think in most audiences who saw that moment knew what the, 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 the soft whistle that was being blown there, which is that, which is that now our main character is actually in more danger that with the appearance of the police. Um, and, and the police are no way going to see this as, as, uh, as his, uh, they're not at the end of a normal horror movie. If the white girl's running away from the house and the police come, you think, Oh, she's safe. Yeah. yeah. And that is not this case. The entire film has set you up to get you no matter what race you are watching this story, you know, he's fucked. Yeah. And there's, this is why this is the perfect sort of transition into why I'd want to see his version more than Catherine Bigelow's is because he was able to take a concept in that case, a horror movie concept and bring the audience along for a ride that, that, that equates in a, in obviously a, very minor way but in a very effective way that feeling like you know for that character that that means sudden doom where where it's so like in if you took the story of detroit in the algier motel and you gave it to jordan peele who's able to move an audience into not only being able to see the horrific acts but get yourself in the mindset of the people that are experiencing the horrific acts that to me is a more powerful story than just showing me all these atrocities very clinically i think you've just identified the the problematic part of detroit uh in one one in one statement. And, and so we want to move on into, into our review of Detroit, but I think that that's an interesting preamble to talk about this particular film, because I think this is, this is, you know, we're not in the age of uh, Kevin Costner doing dances with wolves, for example, uh, <laughs> or we, the last samurai. Yeah. Or the last samurai telling, you know, like, uh, so the Edward Zwick film, I think we're in a, we're in a very different space now where, where people's opinions, audiences are more engaged in a film. And, and, uh, the, the, the filmmaker I would have loved to have seen tackle this particular story. Story, uh, is not a director himself, but David Simon, who um, produced The Wire um, and Show Me a Hero, um, I think would 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 find the nuances in the story in a particularly interesting way. because yeah. that's what he's good at. Um, uh, and the the point the so, so just before we go into that, Matt, tell us what Detroit is all is all about. Okay, here <laughs> we go. Amidst the chaos of the Detroit Rebellion, with the city under curfew, and as the Michigan National Guard patrolled the streets, three young African-American men were murdered at the Algiers Motel. So what do you think the... So here's the problematic part. Now, I first up, uh, I'll, I'll just say I did, I did for the most part, um, think that this is a very worthwhile film to watch. Yes. And it's interesting that I use that word and because it's, it's not a film you can easily recommend. I use the term and I've said it before film as medicine. Yeah. Um, cause I do, I, I, when I, when I walked out of this movie mm-hmm. and this isn't really getting into too much of the end, but I was like, I knew I'd heard this had happened. Mm-hmm. I didn't know details. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then I sort of got into like, Oh, like my upbringing, like why isn't, why aren't like, I I think all of these ugly, <laughs> shitty American tales. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel like there need to be that school schools need to tell these stories more. And I think from a clinical sort of point of view. Yeah. Because. I do think that, and again, this is getting into psychology that I am in no way sort of able to prove, but just sort of what I've experienced in my own life and whatnot. If you watch this story unfold, either this story or stories like it at a young age, and then you have discussions about it and what's happening and whatnot. Like I feel like empathy is a muscle Mm -hmm. and I feel like that would exercise it to a great deal, way more than just learning about like, 
uh, I mean, the the bullshit, like, I mean, it's not bullshit. It's important because it's natural, uh, national history, but like how America came to be and sort of the, 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 this is a hilarious term to use for it, but the whitewashing of all of the violence yeah. <laughs> that took place to make this country happen. Like the, the history of Christopher Columbus. W- yeah. Like how does that still a fucking holiday? Yeah, still this <laughs> fucking genocidal, whatever. I have a real problem with Christopher Columbus. The, the, so so to have those things just sort of being like everything squeaky clean and like it's so funny how you can take a story like Christopher Columbus and how we basically took this country from the Native Americans and you can sort of just like clean it up and like oh they had Thanksgiving and they all shared and then like they skip about 50 years and then white people all have everything and you're like wait what like <laughs> but but they do it in such a fucking weird mind wipe way where as a kid you don't question it as I'm saying this from as a white suburban kid you don't question it and not until I got older and went, you know, later, later in high school and college was I like, what the fuck? Like, but I don't think I I honestly want stories like this. I wouldn't mind this film, honestly, being shown in schools. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, you need to exercise empathy in young people. And if you don't, you end up with where we are now. And it's just like more you just need to get all of these things. Don't sweep things under the rug as a society. Like, Oh fuck, this is a whole bunch of places we fucked up. Let's talk about it. How can we not fuck up like that again? Right. So, so you wouldn't be a fan of uh, 1492 conquest of paradise, Ridley Scott's film by Christopher Columbus. No, <laughs> no. Um, fuck Christopher Columbus, the end. Okay. So, uh, well, tell me how you really feel. what do you think of the film? Uh, well, Christopher Columbus in it is garbage. No, mm. uh, Look, I, I think, um, let's talk film crafty stuff first, because we've, I mean, we've delved into a little bit of that, of how she does things very clinically, but I thought, you know, it looked good. Uh, it made you feel as if you were in a war zone, which that I feel like for the people involved in this story, it definitely must've felt like, Mm -hmm. um, I think the performances both, uh, from all sides were very strong. I think with, um, a standout of uh, Algie Smith and Anthony Mackie, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Not a fan of Will Poulter? Uh, he was fine. He was just... I, I think Will Poulter... You think extra- he did the best? I think he's extraordinary in this movie, yeah, yeah. to be honest with you. Yeah. I think he's terrifying in every way that this film needed him to be. Yeah, yeah. No, I think he, he served the thing. Uh, the, he served the story well. Um, it felt... Uh, this Actually, weirdly enough, and again, I'm never sure if this is the movie theater or the filmmaker these days, because the experience is so touch and go. Yeah. I thought this use of surround sound mm-hmm. in this film was remarkable. I noticed it a bunch of times okay. about where, where shots came from, where sirens were, where people were screaming. I felt the positioning in, even when they had everyone against the wall in the hotel and things were going on in side rooms, the sound was always like helped me direct where the action was. And it kept my brain in the space and to keep, and it's funny for because for a film that is other than that, very clinical, like here's all the stuff it, it, it puts you in the position of a ghost in the room watching the movie that you have no, no, like it's almost like not emotional, but like no actual way to interact with it. Obviously it's a film, but that's where it is where I feel like a Jordan Peele film gets you in a character and you try, you, you empathize through that character and experience it that way. Um, so, uh, I think from a technical aspect, I was very impressed with the sound design, (laughs) which is strange. It's it's a, uh, I, I, I mean, I appreciate your criticism here, but, you know, like your, your thoughts on the movie, but these seem so perfunctory. Like, like I, I would expect a movie directed by an Oscar nominated director to have good design and be well shot and well considered. I, I, they seem, I, it seems so perfunctory. I don't think so. I mean, I don't remember having that visceral sound experience for Hurt Locker. Okay. I don't, you know, I don't, you know, I just, I, yeah. there, it, but again, like it's all, 
I mean, I don't think, I really don't think we can just say, oh, you know, she's normally good. So let's not talk about the shit she did good. No, like, I, I just, <laughs> I, I would just presume she, you know, like, like I would presume, I would, I would look, presume James Cameron knows how to do special effects. You know what I mean? Yeah, but you, you still were reviewing an entirety of a film. We're not just reviewing a part of a film. So I was talking about that part. Fuck you, you perfunctory. I'm talking about the movie, like the I'm physical like, crafting of the movie. Okay. All right. Sorry. I apologize if that was taken <laughs> the, the wrong way. What the fuck was that? No, I just, I, it's, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we talking about cinematography? That's just dumb. Uh, so I do honestly think it's filmmaking is medicine at the end yeah. of the day. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, I do feel like the, you know, we always get back to this. At least I do is the advertising of the film seemed off. You watched the trailer right before yeah, right walked in here, but, uh, I, but I did see a couple of posters and there were two interesting. Posters. I know there's, I, well, I want to talk about the posters too, okay. but I'll talk about the trailer. Then maybe you do the yeah. posters. Okay. Uh, so I was, I here's watching it on his laptop and I hadn't seen the trailer in a long time and all I'm here. So I'm hearing the trailer and the entire sound design of the trailer sounds like it's a fucking transformers movie. There's a lot of don't, 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 and like uh uh there's like the, there's a spot in the movie where one of the deputy mayors or something is standing on a car like talking to the crowds of people during the riot and it's like uh and he says the words change is coming mm-hmm. um and in this in this trailer it like echoes that over and over to a beat it's like change is coming brown dun 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 change is coming brown mm-hmm. and you're like if I'm not watching this and like just sort of tertiarily listening to the words, it could be a fuck. It could be Transformers Six, the dumb nonsense. Like it's it's very weird that they're advertising this. Uh, I mean, it's not weird. I get why they're doing it, but that brings me into a point of like, well, we've talked about war movies before, but now we're talking about fucking national tragedies and oh, should that be a form of entertainment? And that's a bigger question than we I, have I think, for I now. Think, I think the, the point that this is uh, that this film is raising is that, is that the, for, for many people, Detroit 1967 was a war yeah. at home. Yeah. And, and you know, it gets into that question that we asked about Dunkirk, which is that what value does replaying a war movie offer a society. And I think, you know, like, uh, in the case of Dunkirk, I think, uh, we all kind of, I, 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 you know, uh, sorry if I'm paraphrasing your opinion on it, but I think my opinion on it was, was that it was a very, um, gripping retelling of the event, but not necessarily one that offered a perspective that I thought was unique or, or, or even, worthwhile or valuable other than a reference point that this happened. Yeah. And I think the, the thing about, um, Detroit that is interesting. Uh, so, so for example, there are, there are two posters. One is, uh, a poster that says it's time we knew. And the second one is this is America. And the question, the, the, if you want to think about the semiotic, um, (sighs) perspective on each, each of those posters is when they say it's time we knew who is the we in that sentence. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) White people. And this is America is also, again, a semiotic perspective, which, which suggests the, 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 the point of view that this film is going to have. And I think it belies what, what, what I think are some of the problematic parts of the, particularly in the opening of this film. Sure. So, so uh, I will, uh, my, my brief overall thoughts of this This is a very gripping piece of cinema. Um, I think, uh, as you say, I think the, the standout performance for me is Will Poulter. I think, I think he embodied, you said that. Yeah. uh, Sorry. Sorry. As, as I was saying is that is Will Poulter. And I think the reason why Will Poulter, uh, not only his performance and his character is important is that it points to, um, it, it points to a complex view of racism, which is one that is not just 
purely evil, even though he is a monster in this film, but it's a self-delusional evil, which is that he believes, and he genuinely believes, and I think through the performance, he genuinely believes that his actions are righteous. And and there's a really interesting moment at the end of it um, when when um, John Boyega's character um, sees him in a courtroom and 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 says, how can you tell a lie about this? And he says, look, the, you know, what happened happened. You're a real stand-up guy, though. Thank you. And, and it's a moment where you realize that this character, Will Poulter's character, is entirely deluded about his malevolence in this story. He believes that he is still righteous. And even though I think subconsciously he understands that he is in the wrong, there is no, there is no psychological way for his brain to actually accept that and accept shame for that. So, and it's something that I, the reason I want to point that out is that I think that's really interesting is that if you go this week, uh, after the events in Charlottesville, there was a, a documentary by vice, uh, which, which followed some white national surrounds. And, and, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a problematic, uh, tendency to, um, describe racism as pure evil or as just like, knowingly evil, like a, like a character evil in a character, uh, in a superhero film. And that's, and that's and a not, bad superhero yeah, film. but that's not what racism in right. racism is, is actually, um, it's much more belied by systemic, uh, inequality. And so it's not that people are trying to be bad. It's people truly believe that they are better than other people. And I think that's what's, what's, what's powerful about Poulter's performance in this film is that it opens with him saying, we have let these people down. We're letting, you know, we're, we're not, we're not helping these people. And then it's proceeded, followed by him shooting uh, a looter in the back. And, and I think that that, that, that dichotomy between what he thinks is doing is right and his actions is really what makes this film complex and interesting. And that comes into play in the second half of this film when it becomes about the Algiers hotel. My problem has to do with the first half of this film. And I'm, and I'm thinking about it in reference to another film that we saw this year, one that I was very, uh, very enamored with, uh, the people versus OJ Simpson. Yes. Um, which the people versus OJ Simpson does a similar thing, um, to set up the Watts riots. And the thing about the way the people versus OJ Simpson sits up the Watts riots is it gives you, uh, and I know you thought that the film was too long, but yep. I think it was, uh, it was masterfully. I wasn't going to bring it up. I think it was masterfully done. In, and it's something that this film doesn't seem to do is that we understand the societal and historical context that causes someone to throw a brick through a store in their own, in their own community. It, it, it gives you a historical context, a societal context, a level of frustration that makes that make sense. And in, in the case of Detroit, I feel like, like they kind of, uh, they give you this opening monologue through a series of paintings about sure. the, about, um, um, uh, the Southern movement, uh, mm -hmm. up to the Northern States and also the, the eventual white flight. And then the problem with domestic, uh, wages and, yep. and that's sort of but it's kind of glossed over once, once the riots begin, we think it's just sort of an average frustration of a, you know, someone of the cops. Oh, and I, I don't, don't, I don't, I didn't get that at all. Actually. Did, did you, did you get the sense that people were being pressured by wages, that people were being pressured by police brutality, that people were being pressured by the economic downturn of the society. Well, I mean, I could, I could see your point in a vacuum. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't watch this film in a vacuum. I watched it in 2017, uh, United States of America. Right. Uh, with all of the other stuff that we've watched and everything. And, and, and I feel like, and again, as far as a time, you know, I, since you brought up time of OJ Simpson, uh, that the, I feel like as, as far as a runtime of this film, I think it runs almost two and a half hours for, for Detroit. Yeah. Um, I, 
from from again, I, I'm not saying I understand like as if I was a person in mm-hmm. those situations, but like I understand that all of those things happened and what and sort of why people would then end up sort of do that. I don't think this film is trying to explain that. It's trying to get us to a particular event in it as quickly as possible. And it's assuming whether or not that's intelligent or not for for the film or the filmmakers to assume that with that preamble and you're like, oh, yes, I, I've, I've heard of this. Yeah. I've heard of I've heard of systemic racism and classism and how it turns you know cities into into nightmare. Yeah. Like it doesn't need to sort of focus down on that because it's it really wants to put focus on this one particular situation in Detroit during those riots. So I didn't have a problem with that. I didn't think it was, um, I didn't think it glossed it over. I think it gave, uh, you know, a preamble to sort of spark your brain and be like, yep, this is information that I have heard before. And I understand I, ha- I, and, and even if I didn't, uh, I now have a brief understanding as to why people would start rioting. Okay. Uh, I, I didn't feel again, I, I could see like in a vacuum, if I was watching this about, uh, maybe a, a culture that I didn't understand entirely across the world. And then something like that happened. I'd be like, well, why are these people like, but I never thought that. Let me, let me put it to you this way. Um, uh, in the Vice documentary, I don't know if you've seen it. Um, there, there's a, a main character who's who emerges, who's been all over the news this week, uh, who basically says the line, "Look, these people," and he's talking about African American people. These people loot and you know act like animals and ruin their own cities. Do you think that that he, as a person, if you watch, say, for example, The People versus O.J. Simpson or this film, would have a bit of contextual understanding of why that might in some way make sense. Uh, yeah, no, I honestly think that OJ Simpson, it would be, it would be a better thing again, but, but I feel like OJ Simpson and the reason why I think you give it a pass for being as long as it did is, I think it's, uh, is, is because it, it's dealing with a trillion different small things that roll into sort of two major, you know, things where I, where I don't, I just feel like the, uh, I got this for Detroit. I got what I needed. I also don't think that, well, I mean, there's there's actually two arguments to it. Yeah. If you show that guy, like, let's say you, you, you sat him down, you said you have to watch one of these two films. Yeah. Uh, one is seven and a half hours long and the other one is two and a half hours long and he had to watch them. Yeah. He'd pick the two and a half hour one. And I'm, I'm not saying that it's, I'm just saying because like I feel like as an effective message about a particular incident. Yeah. Uh, Detroit does it faster and and i think better because it's faster now now deep dive fuck no oj simpson of course because they have the time to do it and they're really just going in there and i think there's 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 uh pros and cons to both i just think as a as as a uh film where you're supposed to sit down and watch i mean you don't have to watch the whole thing but watch the whole thing it's it's uh, seven I, I and a half hours is rough you know the other the other point there is that um you know for example there have been many films about uh race riots about rioting in general and i think and i think you know one of the the main touch points in American cinema is do the right thing, um, which which gets to a point where you know Mookie throws the uh, the trash can through the window, yep. and we uh, and we seem to have built up an entire understanding of why that happens. Uh, I'm reminded, uh, but then you know what? I, the reason why I think that opening sort of half hour of this film is problematic is that we don't. I don't think we quite. I don't think the film invests seriously an understanding of the cultural context of why the rioting happened. I just don't think that's what the film is about. I think the film is about a situation that happens within the riot, but it's called Detroit and it's about, and the posters are, this is America. Oh, I know. I'm and, not saying the advertising is correct. I said that was wrong from the beginning. I don't think I, it's just, and it's an interesting way to start your film, you know, like, and I, and I look, 
Without a doubt, um, in that conversation about who owns a story, it's it's a there is a definitely a you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't kind of scenario here, which is that it's 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 important that filmmakers tell these kinds of stories. Without a doubt, you're also damned if you do because because everyone wants to have ownership of stories and everyone has a point of view now, um, and everyone has a, an, an ability to to voice that point of view. So you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And I and I think the the thing the tricky thing about this particular film is it's dealing with such a, you know, like if the example of, of the audience gasping at the end of get out is anything to, 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 to reference, not only that, but also the riots in Ferguson, the, the ongoing uh, cases of uh, police violence and brutality that, that we still hear about without any repercussions, then this is a particularly sore subject for American audiences. And I think to gloss over the notion of why there might be a legitimate frustration. And I, and I do think, and I do legitimately think that this film tends to gloss over that at the beginning because it doesn't, it isn't, it isn't circulate. The, the beginning also isn't circulating our main characters. It's just kind of circulating a couple of characters that who become peripheral towards. And then, and then eventually it lands at the Algiers motel where, where the film comes into focus. And I think that's where the film really starts to work. And I think the film really starts to get into play when we see, when we see the, uh, the interplay between Larry, the, the, the lead singer from the, uh, dramatics, uh, and, and his, I believe it's his cousin or his younger brother or, um, um, played by, uh, Jacob Lattimore. Sure. Um, and, and their interplay with, uh, with Will Poulter's character and also John Boyega, uh, played by, uh, who plays Dismookies, yep. uh, c- comes in as well. And I think, I think that's where the film really gets. Right. Cause gets that's, its, cause, because, it, you know, but I, but I find that first half hour uh, an interesting place to start and, and perhaps a little misguided and a little, a little lacking of nuance. And I, I just, and, I just, and, just and, and, the, and the reviews from, from Huffington post and, and the, and the Roger Ebert one are pointing to those things and they're talking to people who have been in this situation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just, I personally disagree with that. Again, I think, I think it's a little perfunctory to be talking about parts of a film that aren't in the film. No, I'm kidding. Wait, I, they, I, they are in the film, but what I'm saying is, well, I'm sorry, what the, what the film is actually focusing on. Yes. Right. The name is Detroit. Yeah. Uh, and it, yes, should, should a film, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Theoretically, should a film named Detroit be about the entirety of the? I mean, but and this is a weird thing, and I'm going to spin it in, in an off sort of kilter. A film about Detroit? Why isn't it talking about all of the things in Detroit? Like, right. do, like it's it's not. It's the name of the movie. That's what they chose, and they wanted to talk about the Algier Hotel, and they wanted to get there as quickly as possible. Again, I feel like I would agree with your opinion more if this was in a vacuum. It is absolutely not in a vacuum. So I think that the filmmakers just decided, okay, everyone who is going to see this film that's going to go out and see it understands this these moments enough to get us to the point and still get us in like into this one intimate horrible moment uh so i just don't think i don't think it was uh misled i don't think it was uh um, done poorly or not explained enough i think it was explained perfectly enough to get to the point that the filmmaker wanted to tell now again could it be done better by someone with a different uh viewpoint on this entire thing a hundred percent but i just think uh it's 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 always interesting uh and I, i know it's all opinion and, and I know you felt that way. And so that's, that's cool. Um, I just, I, I don't know. I could, I just disagree. I don't know. <laughs> I, it, it's funny. Cause I could, we could keep picking this apart, but I don't think we're going to convince each other. So let's just move on. Okay. <laughs> um, 
but but uh, as I say, uh, I think the second film, part, right? the, the film really comes into focus here, and I think and I think this is uh, this is what Catherine Bigelow is fantastic at the dynam- the interdynamics of characters within a terrible situation, and a I terrible think, militaristic situation. Yeah, and I think and I think <laughs> like why, Point Break. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, if you're skydiving and needing to catch someone without a parachute, there's no better person than Catherine Bigelow. If oh. you need to see why you're scared of cops, Jordan Peele might be your guy. Yeah. But but I think the um, the thing that that makes this scene work. And it's a reason, it's a reason why I think, um, you know, just to, to bring a side note in, but a, but a point of comparison, a film like 12 years of slaves really, really works is that what is on display here is not, um, is, is a demonstration of the interplay interplay of power between people and the systemic way in which racism finds itself manifested within people. So what I mean by that is the thing that the things that are interesting in, in, uh, this scene, this scene, you know, which is a, it's a 30 minute scene, maybe a 40 minute scene of, of, of basically, uh, many characters who police are brutality, the, yeah, mind games and murder. Yeah. Being, being basically subjected to, what you could characterize as a horror film. Um, you know, the, the, uh, a really tense situation where Will Poulter and his, uh, and his cronies are trying to get themselves out of a situation where they've murdered someone. Um, and they want to find a justification for doing so in trying to find a sniper weapon. How many knives does dude carry? <laughs> I know there's a lot and of literally, knives. Every time he murdered someone, he has dropped a pocket knife next to them. So he could be like, Oh, he had a knife. And then know. he like, he literally runs out of pocket knives. <laughs> and that's when the problem for him really gets big. <laughs> um, so, but, but the thing that's interesting here is the way in which there is an inherent power play between, and, and this is again why I think Will Polto is like a really, really well cast person here is that he ordinarily feels like a, a diminutive character. He feels, you know, like he's kind of nerdy, awkward. Yeah, but he weird. also has a very punchable face. Yeah, yeah. But, and but I, I think he's a great actor. Like, I don't want to punch him in the face, but when he's acting this character, you're like, yeah punch this guy in the face. But like, for example, there's a character Beno, uh, you know, played by Beno Tool next to him, uh, who's kind of like the big, burly, muscular guy. But Will Poulter is the guy, you know, this sort of scrawny guy seems to be playing mind games with everyone and he's really good at it. And I think the things that are interesting here are the way in which um, that malevolence, racism, um, inequality is enabled by the people around him. So for, for one, you know, it's enabled directly by people who agree with him, yep. you know, like, so the Bino tool character yeah. is like, why do you, you know, they, they pick up two, two white women and they're like, why do you got to sleep with these black guys? And he says that explicitly, yeah. but moreover, the state police comes in and says, well, they've got their, you know, like you can't do this. It's got their bill of rights. But then they look to the police and they go, well, I'm not going to get involved in this. And yeah. that's, and that's this thing, which is that it's a, it's a demonstration of systemic, uh, of systemic in, in injustice. And I think the, 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 the last half that's of the- injustice, even like through a lens of just pure, like it, it's weird. Like it's, it's horrific and it's more horrific because it's just through laziness and fear of keeping your own. It, it, there's no, for, for, for someone who's quote protecting and serving, they yeah. didn't want to do either because they knew it'd be a lot of work. It'd be a lot and, of work. And, like, and, and for people that they don't necessarily care about. Yeah. And so it's just like, if this was happening in a, in an upsmarket yeah, yeah, yeah. white community, like, so this it, would be it, a very it's super story. shitty. And the national guard kind of does it too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're like, Oh and man. That's, and that's where the film really starts working. And I, and I, and I particularly think that the, the last half of this film, which kind of gets a lot of flack because it, um, it tends to move away from being a tense thriller into a courtroom drama. 
Um, you know, like it gets a lot of flack because it's, it's, it's not as exhilarating at, you know, an immediate in the way that that first half is. Yeah, but you, yeah, but, but, but it, it demonstrate, be. it demonstrates the systemic injustice, which led to this. And it's, and it's, and something that's still true today. You only have to look as far as Tamir Rice or, or, um, Mike Brown or anyone. Yeah. If someone's getting upset with the third act of this film, because it's not as, as super intense and sort of terrifying and just horrific as the middle act, shut the fuck up because I'm dead serious. <laughs> this is not an action movie. This is not transformers where you're going to get this big fucking giant nonsense thing in the third act try to fucking learn something like this is how the world that was worked it was kind of still works but worked at this time and yeah and then there's not only is the horrors of the injustice in the moment but here's horrors <laughs> that is in a procedural hearing going on probably for weeks that then there is no justice at the end of it and that illustrates a second problem in our entire system the first one the 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 flashpoint if you will of the hotel there's a ton of injustice there that's very easy to see you totally understand like, yeah, maybe police officers and not even a maybe shouldn't be fucking doing this. Now you get to the part where you're in the courtroom and you're seeing all of these sort of like weird little loopholes and things that are happening and technicalities that are getting these people off. And you, and you start seeing, Oh wow. The injustice didn't stop at the hotel. Yeah. Like I, I just, I, I get mad when people, especially in a, in a, in a film like this are like, Oh yeah. But the third act, like it's just, it doesn't feel as intense as a second act. And you're like, it is just for different reasons, dummy. People aren't getting murdered. Now it's the fallout. And it's and since this is a real story, that should still have power for you. I, I mean, I actually don't disagree with people that the third act uh, is, you know, like to me, the third act, it's, it's, it's interesting because it collects on the nuances of the second act in interesting ways. I think, yes. um, but, but I, I, I don't disagree if people find that the third act is, is lacking, not just the intensity, but the, but the immediacy of dealing with a problem through action. And I think that's what people are responding to that. That third act becomes, becomes more like uh, it's just a different part of the story, no, but, it, but it's, it, it kind of becomes more like, um, you know, you hate white text at the end of a movie telling you what happens next. I think this third act kind of feels like, that for people. It's, it's not really immediate as much as it's kind of just revealing information. And I, and I, I, I don't disagree with that, but I think, I think it works. Here's where I'll bridge the opinion and, and, I, and I, I will kind of recede slightly. Uh, I think the viscerality of the second act uh, lets the third act any any slight problems I have with the third act not feeling and I, I think I don't think intense or interesting is the right word because I think they're it's kind of both of those things mm -hmm. but uh, it's it's to make those scenes it definitely felt like there was in the third act there was sort of less uh, for lack of a better term love or or care put into those scenes than in the hotel yeah I will say that and I feel like again it's almost like. Uh, 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 an allocation of resources in a weird way because again I think honestly second act is a story that they wanted to tell you yeah. can see it yeah uh, and then they knew they had to do the beginning and they knew they had to do the end so they're doing like this thing and but because the second act is so visceral and so powerful I feel like I can then any cracks I see in the armor of the third act I'm like okay because yeah, that's second act now again I just don't like it when people like it's sort of the baseline of it being like, Oh, it just wasn't as intense as the second. And it's like, yeah, this is a structure of this type of film dummy. I just, I, I, I get mad at that. 
Okay. Uh, but I, I get, I, get I, where you're I, I may have been paraphrasing the arguments of people and I may have set up a straw man argument there, but I Uh-oh. think that there are more complex reasons why they thought the third act is, 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 okay. is, is worthwhile. Oh, I, can... I like how you jumped on it right away though. I got mad. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but you know, so again, I think the second act is where this film is powerful. It feels like it works in the same way that you know, film like United 93 works, uh, about, um, about the, the September 11th attacks. It's, it's visceral. It's powerful. It demonstrates systemic power issues mm-hmm. in a way that is immediate and powerful. The, the most troubling, disturbing and upsetting moment in the second act, and we're in spoilers now is, uh, <laughs> I think so. is, is, th- is that Will Poulter's character is essentially playing a mind game with all of his uh, quote unquote hostages where he's like taking them into rooms, pretending that he's killing them and then coming back out and asking again, he's, you know, basically fucking with people, so to speak. Yeah. Trying to get the people still in the hallway to talk and tell them where this random non-existent <laughs> no. weapon is. Yeah. But then there's a third character who enters that, that situation. Uh, and I, I apologize. I don't know which actor it is, but who who basically you know gets told to 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 be part of this and he you know he's like okay you got to go back and kill him you know thinking that this guy's going to be smart enough to know the difference between a game and real life but it turns out no he this is a person the third cop shoots the third prisoner and like yeah and 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 he does it at the behest of the other cops and he does it and the thing there is that he is much less self-aware of the righteousness of his own actions than others. You know, he kind of probably believes that, yeah, we kill black people. That's what we do. And, and he's the dumb evil. Yeah. He's the, he is the dumb, malevolent, malevolent evil that, that we're kind of expected on. And I, and I think, um, the, you know, again, why I, why I think the, the, the strongest part of this movie is Will Poulter's character is that, is that it really, it highlights a systemic delusion about race. And, and I, I was listening to the Ezra Klein podcast this week. Uh, he's the main editor of Vox news and he had a, um, uh, a lawyer on his show by the name of Brian Stevenson, uh, who wrote a book called, uh, just mercy, which I, I just bought and I'm going to start reading soon. The interview was really fascinating because basically Brian Stevenson deals in, um, trying to, uh, get people acquitted of the death penalty, um, trying to basically reverse, you know, decades old, uh, forms okay, of justice. Okay. And he had this notion that, uh, that I found particularly fascinating listening to him was that, is that as, as Americans, we don't indulge in shame. We don't indulge in shame for past atrocities. Going back to my taught yeah. in schools thing from yeah. a couple half hour ago. And, 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 you know, and the, and the thing he points to is the, uh, if you go to, if you go to Germany, it's impossible to forget the yes. Holocaust. It's rem, it's, you're reminded of it constantly. And the reminder has a powerful catharsis in that it, rem, it reminds us of where we should not empathy, return to. Empathy is a muscle. Yeah. And, and, and I think, and I think the, you know, like the delusions that these car you know, particularly the white police officers in this, in this film are under is that they have, and it's, it's this, you know, and again, I'm, I'm bringing it back to the reason I went and saw this film that day was the day that our president ostensibly began making an argument for white nationalism on national TV when put, you know, when put to throw. And have you seen, it's, have you seen him, his fucking uh, advisors and things? They're always saying they're not, that he's not sorry. They're no one's sorry about that statement. They're sorry that it was said publicly. And yeah. I'm like, what is that? 
happening? But it, it's that case where, you know, like, for example, if you go to Canada uh, recently, Justin Trudeau, you know, made apologies for the Canadian atrocities against the native people. And and I, it's not something that I would necessarily see in in popular cultural, American cultural rhetoric. And, and I think, you know, like this idea of... Um, of really actively indulging in the shame of our past. And, you know, like my, you know, like, and don't for a second believe that Indians, you know, from Fiji or New Zealand are, you know, escape any of that as well. But I think it's important to, to engage in, in shame and mercy about our past atrocities. And I think, and I think yeah. where, why this, and I know, you know, I started this, this conversation about who owns the rights to a story. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways, um, while, uh, while what we're the, the answer to that question, that the reason, the, the question behind that question is we're all searching for authenticity. We're all looking for an authentic representation. And that's why people are asking this question, who owns a story? Right. Um, the thing is, is that people who, who may not necessarily be authentically involved in that story should still, it's, it's something that you said should engage in that story because we need to collectively engage in our history in a way that is, that is both remorseful and interrogative interrogative. And I think that actually answers a question that I stated very briefly and I was going to bring up again is, you know, is it okay <laughs> for a story like this to be told as an entertainment medium and to be kind of sold to us in trailer form and in posters and whatever as a sort of kind of summer actiony movie. And at first, at first glance of that question, I would be like, no, that's fucking awful. Like yeah. people are making money off this. This is whatever, blah, blah, blah. But I do feel like, uh, the very fact that one of the posters says it's time we knew mm-hmm. it shows such a disconnect between how history is taught in America (laughs) to different groups and different people. And it's like through an advertising agency's bumble, (laughs) you can kind of see why it's important that this film and films like it, no matter who's telling it, as long as it's, you know, telling the about an atrocity. And as you know, as long as it's not a pure marketing, you know, just cash, 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 cash. Uh, It's important that they are out there, I think. Yeah. Uh, And, and, I think more so. So like going back to Dunkirk, mm-hmm. Dunkirk was made because it's a, it's a exciting and interesting military thing that happened. Now there's a lot of stuff behind it. You know, the, we could even go back into the argument, like why didn't Dunkirk go more into the war? So we understood what the war was going on. Like what you were saying to this thing again, mm-hmm. that's not what the story he was looking to tell. Uh, Christopher Nolan wanted to make a, um, a telling of this, of, of that military battle or military evacuation that felt visceral. Um, I don't think it ever had anything in it that was trying to tell us uh, Nazis bad, not th- because it assumed we knew that apparently we don't, But it assumed we knew that this film, I think, does more of a like it's showing it it, kind of to your point. She here, it's taking the characters of police officers, especially the lead guy in particular, um, and it's making the evil. It's it's that it's the um, misguided, but but has a uh, theology, not a theology, a, um, uh, a background to why he is evil. He's not evil for evil's sake. He's evil because he thinks he's altruistic yeah. and he, his evils are going to make everything better for everyone while still kind of keeping him on the top. Yeah. Um, 
And that, and that's not even just in true stories. Any, any good villain in any story needs to have a reason why they're the villain. And in their head, they're not the villain. That's rule number one of villains Yeah, is they can't just be evil for evil's sake. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's why I, it's funny. Cause when you're younger, you watch cartoons and things and like Skeletor and like all these things are like, I'm evil, but like villains don't think that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, no, everyone, uh, um, you know, everyone thinks that they're the hero of their own story. Exactly. So I, I think that, um, I just sort of to wrap up my thought on that. It's just like, yeah, I think at the end of the day, it is important that these stories be told by, by sort of anyone who, who can tell them. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to get some inaccuracies and we're going to get sort of bad stories here and there. But I, I think just getting it, it's time we knew is such a, just a bumble and a stupid phrase for the poster for this film. But it illustrates that not only does this advertising agency is agency think no one knows about this, uh, but it proves just sort of the ignorance of of a certain group of people behind it. And but it's also it, it is also true that this is not popular American history. So I, I so know. it's kind of like I mean, it's and again, the, and it's and it's it's, time, that, it's it's funny. It, you could have put it's time some of us knew. Yeah, and it's not as catchy. It's not as poppy. But no, it, but it's also it's also a case of you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Like this is an area of American history that's not often talked about. It needs so to, to be. So so to yeah, put I mean, out, they're yeah. starting again. Yeah. I just think with the combination of the the, the Transformers trailer and everything, mm-hmm. like there's evils being done to advertise this movie, and I use bad things, not evils. Yeah. and then it, 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 ignorance things but at the end of the day i'm discounting all of those ignorant things because i think the message about this story and stories like it in american history are important that everyone knows about and apparently people don't know about them sometimes so you, you don't have to look far in, in this in 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 news of the week yeah to to see that people don't know about it um and i think you know again uh i appreciate the 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 notion that uh a major Hollywood Oscar winning filmmaker has turned her view, her gaze inwards to America uh, as opposed to our foreign policy uh, policy in terms of the Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty yep. to an internal war, which is as horrific and as detailed and as little known. Um, and I think, you know, like, unfortunately, um, the, the, the relevance of the digital social age is that we're in an environment now where everyone wants to claim the story as their own. And when they right. see parts of a story that don't reflect their truth, that can invalidate the entire story. Right. And I think, and I think we're just in this interesting period where, you know, uh, you and I are going to have this, uh, this conversation about race and representation in a couple of weeks, which I think is going to be really fascinating. Indeed. Um, and I think we're in this interesting period where, where P, the, the, again, what I think is, what I think is powerful there, what I think is true is that people are searching for authenticity. Sure. People really want an authentic, real representation of the truth as they know it. Unfortunately, the truth as we know it is flexible. Uh, and it is, and it is bends and it changes depending on who oh, you yeah. are. No human being has the truth about anything. Listen, uh, we have our perceptions of what we believe happened. I'm going to borrow a line from the big sick that borrowed a line from the X-Files, but the truth is out there. <laughs> okay, we just can't see it. Uh, final thoughts it. on the movie, Shahir. Just give me give me a wrap up and sort of like I mean, do you want I mean, do if you my want Facebook, to see it? My Facebook status with this movie would be it's complicated. Uh, and I think it's a, <laughs> you are so mid thirties. Yeah, Holy shit. Would my t- what, would, what would my Twitter reaction be? Film food. Uh, have, uh, have, I wonder yeah, what they were yeah. eating. I wonder what they were eating. What they were eating the, during the riots. Courtroom lunch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's complicated. I think it is, it is absolutely a worthwhile endeavor to see. I think, I think, uh, it's a case of being damned if you do damned if you don't. Um, it, it's, it's, 
and I think, you know, again, Catherine Bigelow and Mark Boll are powerful filmmakers uh, of the moment who have, um, who have turned their eyes to a story that I think is little told. And it, and that is remarkable in itself as an act of, of, uh, of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are complexities to this particular story, which I think get glossed over. And I do agree with that. Um, I do agree that the film does miss opportunities to tell a full and rich story. And that might be inherent to its, to its duration. That might be inherent to the particular way it's told. Um, but uh, if we're in the damned, if you do damned, if you don't category, I would rather be damned if you do. So I'd rather be, uh, I would yeah. rather be the case that people see this and have that conversation. I would rather people engage in that conversation, knowing that this film exists rather than it doesn't exist. And I think just playing off that, uh, I agree. I think that um, people should see this film. I, I think that some of the criticisms being lauded at it as, as like, say for instance, like it doesn't take enough of a stance or a side or like some sort of like thing. And it's very clinical and whatnot. I think that's exactly what sort of Catherine Bigelow with all of these last three films of hers is going for. She wants these films, I think, and literally I'm putting, mm-hmm. this is how I take it. Mm-hmm. She wants these things to be conversation starters. Yeah. She doesn't want people. And it's interesting because at the end of the day, we're talking about everything, but I feel like we might only be talking about one person's opinion uh, if it was a more, uh, you know, if it was more of a sort of, uh, auteur project sort of feel to it, meaning, uh, you'd, you'd be talking about so-and-so's opinion of it rather than, oh, this is a clinical look because she's good at doing clinical. Right. Uh, so this, I feel like they want people to obviously know this happened. If you didn't get more information, if you just tertiarily heard about it yeah. and then have discussions about it in this day and age where we need to have more and more of these discussions more and more, because it's become very clear that the fact we don't have these discussions has led to some dark shit. <laughs> and again, I, I, I know I said it before a couple times and I just truly believe this entirely. Empathy is a muscle. You, you need to exercise it. You should, they should show this and other films like it and documentaries, etc., about American history. Like as it, as accurately as we can tell it showing atrocities in schools. And, uh, this would fit right in there for me. So I, while I don't agree with some of the advertising choices and a couple sort of like minor bad things in it, I think it's very important that people see it. I think it's important that, uh, uh, that stories like this get told. And I hope that either Catherine Bigelow or anyone else who wants to tell a story like this, uh, does so. And, uh, yeah, so go see it. Vote with, with buckaroos. Uh, I'm going to do, uh, do a little segment that I, that I have not done for a while. Oh my no. Cri- my criterion. Quota, oh no, no, no. Which if you're, if you're signed up to Filmstruck, you can get uh, all the criterion films. But if you, uh, if you did enjoy this film and obviously anyone who knows uh, cinematic history will know the film I'm going to refer to, not just because it's title references, something that ha- important that happened in this film, but I think in tonally and structurally as well as it was, it's a film that also represents something that this film is aiming for. But that is the battle of Bel- Algiers by Giello's Pantacorvo. Uh, amazing film about uh, the Algerian resistance uh, from French occupiers. You should definitely watch that film if you are interested in this particular type of filmmaking. And then, of course, do the right thing as well. I don't know why I have such a visceral uh, hatred for your I know, criterion you seem to corner. Have a hatred but for, it, no, but hang, it, on, hang on. You seem to have a hatred for me saying things with, with knowledge about a subject. No, you no, it's it. just a criterion corner. I think it, and I was trying to place why, because I had that visceral reaction and I was like, oh, fuck. But it's so funny because I don't actually hate it. I think I just hate that you branded the criterion corner. And what I don't you, know. What I, would you like me to call it? I would just say, hey, watch these films are in the Criterion Collection. But again, I don't know. There's no reason for it. And I got to figure out why that is. Uh, so I apologize for the visceral uh, sort of reaction to it. Uh, I don't know. I think I, I, maybe because in my head, when you, you say, you, when you say you Criterion Corner. shame right now? No, no, no. When you say Criterion Corner, I just picture like a slide whistle going off. 
surfers are like, and I'm like, I don't know why. Uh, You know, I'll work on that. We all have things we can work on. Okay. You can stop calling uh, reviewing parts of a film perfunctory and I'll stop shitting on you for naming something uh, a thing that it is. Uh, This has been the only podcast about the film Detroit. I think we hit some nerves today. I think we did. We're we're nervy. I'm excited because I think this is going to lead this is this movie is going to lead us well into that race and representation conversation. A couple weeks away. uh, Uh, I know we keep teasing it. We're going to have a couple lighter fares between then and now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, it'll but be please, good. But please write us in uh, with your thoughts. I th- I feel like we got into uh, well, the kind of thing I want to do when we do reviews, which is that we're engaging in a broader conversation about the value of cinema. Yes. And if you have opinions about the value of cinema and the value of a film like Detroit within uh, particularly our, our current political climate, please write us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod. Matt, where can people find you on the internet if they want to hit you directly? Uh, they can find me at matthewkroll.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com. Or you can hit me up on Twitter at Emperor MSK or on Instagram at Skeletor, the number four P-R-E-Z. Did you do your personal stuff or did you just do the the, the, the regular stuff? I just did the regular oh, stuff. Oh, do your personal stuff. <laughs> okay, so you can hit me up at uh, shahirdaud.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. Uh, try out the Twitter handle Film Food. I'm asking all sorts of dumb questions. You, about mean, you mean the hashtag? The hashtag, the Twitter hashtag Film Food. 30, 30, <laughs> mid-30s motherfucker. Yeah, don't know how to use uh, Twitter. But uh, I, I, how was the robot music video? September 15th? September 15th. I'm going to keep pushing it. You should. You should. It's coming out soon. Uh, there's some trailers. Uh, if you go to nigelstanford.com you'll see trailers for it there nigel um and you'll get a you'll get a glimpse of it uh i'm very excited for the release of that it has been same what two and a half maybe three years in the making now i do feel like normally for like a, a friend's project that has this timetable i'm normally like i'm like over it i yeah. am not over that i want this to drop so hard it and is so we good we're gonna have a special episode we are that comes out in the wake of that <laughs> that we recorded like a year ago yeah 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 i'm very excited <laughs> for that that should be fun um, it's going to be so weirdly timed. Like if we made any political statements, I, I'm, I'm going to look forward to hearing it. Yeah, I, I can't remember what we spoke about, but we spoke about a, we, we, a classic. We, we, we shouted a lot and no one heard us scream. Uh, oh, ooh, <laughs> ooh. well, anyway, uh, guys and gals and everyone, thank you so much. We'll see you next week for some lucky time. Oh, that is right. Oh, I can't wait to talk about something uh, light ish. <laughs> see you next week. Bye.